Well, how are a priori synthetic judgments possible? In the Prolegomena, Kant says that pure mathematics, and especially Euclidean geometry, can have objective reality only on the condition that they refer to objects of sense. Now, what's particularly important in that brief passage is that Kant, again, as he often does, refers to the objectivity of mathematical and scientific propositions. This is over and against claims, their current claims and frequent claims, that Kant's metaphysics lapses into subjectivism. If it does, it does so over Kant's objections. But in the same passage, he declares that the propositions of geometry are, quote, necessarily valid. Why? Because space itself is nothing other than the form of all external appearances. So every time he, just about every time he asserts the objectivity of the program, he inserts something that does look like it's a road to subjectivity. And so the task is to determine just how we can get objective knowledge of the external world by means of a framework that we impose on the external world or put in the form of a question, how are synthetic propositions known to be true a priori? Well, here's an answer to the question. We might say Hume's answer to the question. They can't be. Now that would be the end of the story. In fact, most empiricists would argue that it is simply out of the question that the truth of a synthetic proposition could be established a priori. You know, back in the 1930s, C.D. Broad reflected on this. This is before uh, Quine and company. And he said that, uh, he said, those who insist on the impossibility of our being able to know the truth of synthetic propositions a priori are surely advancing a synthetic proposition and it seems to be one that they take to be self-evidently true so there, there is this problem if you want to declare once and for all that it is out of the question that there could be synthetic propositions the truth of which can be established a priori if you want to deny that are you denying it as itself a synthetic proposition? And do, you, and do you take that synthetic proposition to be self-evidently true? I leave you with that. In the preface to the second edition, Kant traces the development of systematic knowledge from Aristotle's logic to the mathematics and science of his own day uh, with a lengthy pause over the achievements of Galileo and Newton in the preceding century. Aristotelian logic, he says, no surprise here, constitutes the formal laws of all thought, but it serves formal logic, Aristotle's logic, he says rather pictorially, it serves as, quote, the vestibule of the sciences. And while it is necessary to enable us to form a correct judgment with regard to the various branches of knowledge, still the acquisition of real substantive knowledge is to be sought only in the sciences properly so called. That is, and here's the claim again, the objective sciences. So you cannot use Aristotelian logic as a mode of 
discovery, you can use it as a truth-preserving device. In fact, uh, eighth week, when we get to the antinomies of pure reason, you'll see what happens when you attempt to use logical forms not merely as a method, but as a mode of discovery. And of course, you'll end up discovering all sorts of things, all of them, all of them illusory. So it is the objective sciences that are again the model here. Now, why should anyone assume that the objective sciences are themselves able to capture the order of nature, the lawfulness of nature? Kant begins with the assumption that nature is an orderly enterprise, that it is law-governed, do you see? Uh, on the strength of what does he say that? Well, on the strength of Newtonian science. The laws have, have been worked out. Well, from the fact that, that nature is lawful, and from the fact that we have uncovered the lawfulness of nature, we must have some means by which to overcome subjectivity and reach an objective knowledge of the way things are. So, so much for a skepticism about our capacity for unearthing the objective facts of nature. Now, uh, Kant is not taking a lead here. The lead is ancient. Aristotle says in the physics, if the art of shipbuilding were in the wood, we would have ships by nature. So it, it's been obvious for quite a long time that there are design features to the natural world. Am I allowed to say intelligent design features in the natural world? Uh, Professor Dawkins listening? Well, but if the art of shipbuilding were in the wood, we would you'd be able to leave driftwood out. And if you let enough time go by and had enough cows die near the driftwood, perhaps in infinite time you'd be able to fashion leather sails and something like a trireme with three rows for oarsmen. And you might even be able to wage a naval battle on Egypt. Mind you, this would take a great deal of time. The very laws of the objective sciences show the sciences to have a rational character. Now that lawfulness is not given in the appearances. The stimulus that arrives at the organs of sense does not carry any information regarding lawfulness with it. If it's visual, it's just photons, do you see? If it's auditory, it's just air vibrations. So the lawfulness must be coming from some place other than the arriving wave of stimulation. Our scientific understandings in which lawfulness is the defining feature do find us relating to the objects of our understanding in one of two ways. Either by way of rational, a rational cognition that determines the concept of the object, th this is Kant in his most lumbering prose, and it's not easier in German. And if I illustrated it by giving it to you in German, most of you wouldn't get um, I should tell you about an, an incident involving one of our famous philosophers here, no, no longer here, known for this kind of prose. He, he gave a keynote address for the international philosophy meetings in Moscow some years ago, and this is where 
when you sit down you can adjust the dials to whatever language you speak and two minutes into his address people were fiddling with the dials trying to find a language that would render all this intelligible. I, 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 the same, the same might, might be said if you serve up a sentence like this. But our scientific understanding, in which lawfulness is the defining feature, finds us relating to the objects of this understanding in one of two ways. We relate to it in one of two ways. Either by way of a rational cognition that determines the concept, well, the Pythagorean theorem. This is a mode of cognition. Given the mode of cognition, we determine the concept of a right angle triangle. It's, it's not that Pythagoras ran around looking for these things. It's these things were constructed by Pythagoras. Or by way of rational cognitions that establish the very reality of an object. Saturn has moons. So these are the two ways that we can relate our cognition to an objective reality. Either the cognition actually determines the concept itself, quite characteristic of mathematics, or in the natural sciences, it's in some branches of the natural sciences, cognitively we actually can discover things that heretofore had not been known. The first form of the relationship between cognition and its objects is what Kant says is the grounding of all theoretical sciences, of which mathematics and physics are the two that are most developed. But they differ in this respect. In mathematics, all of the concepts are a priori. In physics, some of the concepts arise from other sources, such as direct observation. Now, what does he mean when he says that all of the concepts in mathematics are a priori? And I think it's fair to say contemporary mathematicians probably would not accept that. But absent the pure intuitions of time and space, Kant wants to argue, you could have neither arithmetic nor geometry. Because all arithmetic operations are sequential and sequentiality presupposes time and time is a pure intuition it's not something given in the stimulus so were it not for our spatio-temporal mode of apprehension we would be in a position for neither arithmetic operations nor geometric operations geometry presupposes just that spatial context that is provided by the pure intuition of space as arithmetic provide as as uh, the pure intuition of time provides the means by which arithmetic sequential operations become possible. I'm not defending this, I'm attempting to clarify it. Uh, arithmetic requires the pure intuition of time because it depends on succession. And geometry comparably depends on space. Now in this Kant pays homage to Thales. He thinks that one of them, he says Thales or, or whoever did this, uh, he thinks that it was in the ancient Greek world that someone, perhaps Thales, he names Thales because he's fixated on Thales and the isosceles triangle, actually came to the recognition that it was he, Thales, who was constructing out of his own conceptual resources, that which then could be objectively applied to the world. That in fact there was an abstract 
representation of something that is objectively real and that it is out of the cognitive resources of the mathematician that this matching becomes possible. In demonstrating the properties of the isosceles triangle, Thales found that it was not sufficient, Kant says, to meditate on the figure as it lay before his eyes, or that the conception of it merely existed in his mind. Rather, says Kant, and this is a quote, rather, says Kant, quote, it was necessary to produce these properties by a positive a priori construction and that in order to arrive with certainty at a priori cognition, he must not attribute to the object any other properties than those which necessarily followed from that which he himself had, in accordance with his own concept, placed in the object. Now physics, says Kant, took longer to develop, but it developed along comparable lines. What Newton and Galileo realized is that reason only perceives that which it produces after its own design. Do you see, you, you, you'd have no way of launching the project of physics on entirely a posteriori grounds. You already have a conceptual framework of lawfulness, orderliness, causality, etc. Uh, to put the ball in play. As Kant says, accidental observations, accidental observations made according to no preconceived plan could not be united under a necessary law. But it is this that reason seeks for and requires. This is what reason is looking for when reason undertakes scientific inquiry. He goes on to say, it is only the principle of reason which can give to concordant phenomena the validity of laws and it is only an experiment directed by these rational principles that give them any real utility. And so the question is whether metaphysics can be developed along the same lines. This gets back to the prize competition. Must metaphysics uh, be confined to that that groping around in, in, in the dark or can it proceed along the lines of a systematic science? Well, this leads Kant to what is often referred to in the secondary literature as his Copernican revolution, Kant's famous Copernican revolution. The problem with that rendering is that Kant never uses the term Copernican revolution, and in fact, he only mentions Copernicus in the second edition of the work, and there only in the preface. And what he refers to there is den ersten Gedank des Copernicus, Copernicus's first thought. He's not treating it as a Copernican revolution. He's not treating what he's doing as a Copernican revolution. Rather, he's very interested in how Copernicus addressed a problem of some weight. Copernicus was contacted by Pope Leo X. Why was that? Anyone? What was troubling His Holiness? May I say His Holiness? What was troubling His Holiness is this. Holy Mother Church had been using this calendar Julius Caesar's time had contrived a calendar 
Well, it wasn't a bad calendar. Oh, you're off by a little bit. But of course, by the 14th and 15th centuries, you're off by so much that the variation around Easter Sunday is weighing in at two and three weeks, sometimes longer. So the Pope says to Copernicus, I wonder if you might give us a hand with this. When is Easter Sunday? Copernicus writes back and says, I can't be very helpful. Mathematicians do not agree on the length of a year. And so then Copernicus tries a thought experiment. Just how do things look in case I'm standing on the sun? Well, things look quite different. And in fact, the length of the year gets marvelously orderly if you assume that the sun isn't moving and that the earth is. And the important point is this. What Copernicus establishes is that the observer is not a passive recipient of things that just come in from the solar system. He is an active participant in his own observations. And his position and his velocity determine the model of reality that he will construct. That's the main thing that Kant finds in Copernicus. The answer to the question, what was Kant's Copernican revolution, is I have no idea what you're talking about. So, um, so it, it, may I underscore what, it, what is important in, in what Kant found in the mode of analysis that was adopted by Copernicus. Kant was not only fully versed in the science of astronomy, to which he had made uh, significant contributions in, in the pre-critical years, but there's no doubt that his reference to this first thought of Copernicus was based on something deeper than an insight into Copernicus's cognitive processes. What Copernicus understood was that reality as known reflects the modes of receptivity by which events in the external world become translated into experience. And Copernicus knew further that it was only by testing various conjectures against the data of experience that a mere casting about might give way to systematic knowledge that will be valid beyond the narrow world of the individual observer. Now again, suppose this uh, you attempt to reduce this to some sort of subjectivity. Because if all Copernicus was saying is that the model of the solar system you develop just happens to depend on where you are and how you are moving, you, you might end up with one of these Protagoras, man is the measure of all things. What, what Copernicus makes clear is that once you've adopted this different perspective, the result is going to be universally distributed across all percipients. It, it's not that, 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 that if Jack and Jill both go to the sun and observe events from the sun's point of view, Jack and Jill will be in, in, in a state of subjectivity and there's no reason to believe that they will agree with each other. No. What is observed, what is, observed is, is a reality that is conditional, that is the representation of that reality is conditional on the place occupied by the observer. How do we know this does not subjectify everything? We know it doesn't because astronomy has developed as a science. 
One way we know that this works, I show once more, this is the last time, I did this briefly last week, I shall use an audiovisual aid. And this is the final time this term. You were here for it. <laughs> All right, look up. Don't, don't be writing now. This is important. Now there's an answer to the question of why that took place. And the answer to the question is that all bodies attract each other with a force that's directly proportional to the product of their masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. So that Newton, you know, he, in, in the summer of my 23rd year, I devised a calculus of fluxions and appreciated the relationship between the Earth, the Moon, and the other heavenly bodies. When I read that, I reflected on what I had been doing in the summer of my 23rd year. Oh, shame, where is thy blush? Well, um, well, that this happens is not over and against the fact that where we happen to be positioned as observers might have some effect on the measurements that we make. Particularly, for example, if we start going very, very rapidly. If we go really very, very rapidly, then the assumption of mass as unchanging has to surrender to the fact that mass is going to be affected by velocity. And that as we approach the speed of light, the mass is going to approach an infinite magnitude. So what then? Is that subjectivity? No, no, that's drawn, from the, that's drawn from the same perspective, the same project, the same developed science that gave you this in the first instance. So again and again, Kant's model is the achievement of physics. The achievement of physics is sufficient to satisfy him that our cognitive resources are capable of unearthing lawfulness in reality, the objective events of the external world. And the question then, again and again, sorry to be so repetitious, is how we do this, given that the resources we bring to bear on the task are perceptual and cognitive. So, to ask how the solar system appears to one standing on the sun, compared with what is seen by one standing on the earth, is to acknowledge that the appearance itself must be grounded in non-empirical factors. Cognition doesn't lead then to skepticism regarding the reality of the sun, the moon, and the planets. Rather, it establishes how that very reality will be cognized by the situated observer. The position of the observer now simply becomes another element in the account and not a subjective element. Kant's statement that his own attempt to rescue metaphysics from the incessant groping of metaphysicians suggests a parallel with Copernicus's efforts. As with Copernicus, Kant will, he says, make another trial. Auf Anliche, Weise Versuchen. He's going to perform 
a Copernicus-like experiment, another trial, a trial of the same sort that Copernicus has tried. How is he going to do this? He's going to suppose that human cognition, by way of the pure categories of the understanding, constitute the means by which we impose structure and lawfulness such that what we're going to find in our systematic observation of reality are ingredients that we have put there in just the sense that Copernicus's observer on the Sun is now an observer that Copernicus has put someplace other than we once found him. So Kant sees the project as, as a kind of experiment. Now he says the understanding has rules which I must presuppose as being in me prior to objects being given to me. And in this he's recurring both to the transcendental aesthetic and to the doctrine of the cognitive elements. That is to say, you have to stay with this. Keep in mind what empiricism is claiming. Empiricism is claiming that our ideas are fashioned out of experience, that our experiences are perceptual transactions between an observer and the external world, and that the ideas thus formed, if they have any bearing on external reality, simply are the result of elementary sensations being parlayed into something rather more complex and held together by some principle of association. Kant wants to make clear that on that reading you could not have a developed science. You couldn't even hold together the concept of causality, let alone show how it operates in the realm of physical reality. So, nothing in the stimulus will support the project of science, and yet the project of science is successful, so what? So, the necessary ingredients must be supplied by us. Nothing in a priori knowledge can be ascribed to objects save what the thinking subject derives from itself. Now, in this, Kant is tracking, and I, I shouldn't say tracking because it suggests a dependency that would remain to be established. You might include in your readings a work by Manfred Keane on the influence of the Scottish Enlightenment on German philosophy. Keane does make out a case for Kant having had access to translations, redactions and translations of Reed's inquiry into the human mind. Um, uh, Karl Americh's distinguished uh, Kant scholar has recently argued that there are definitely Reedian resonances, Reedian elements in uh, much of the, in, at least in some of the first critique. and. Uh, I, in several places, have, have made, made the same case that, that there are aspects of Reed that match up so well with Kant's argument that uh, it's not a question of dependency, but, but here's how I'd, I'd want you to understand this. Reed and Kant are both troubled most by Hume. Thus, to undertake a criticism of Hume at what is taken to be the weakest points in Hume should result in no surprise if the two critics end up coming up with very similar ideas where, where, where what you're getting is something rather more simultaneous than, than, than causal. 
Now, when Reed takes up the question of causality, on which Kant spends so much ink, uh, particularly in the second analogy, when, when Reed takes it up, he is satisfied that principles of association simply are inapplicable here, that, that no concept of association, e even if the empiricists make clear what they mean by it, no merely associative con concept carries with it the idea of causation. The constant conjunction of events could never give rise, Reed says, could never give rise to the notion of causality except in a creature possessed of active power. I want to flesh this out for you. Imagine yourself to be totally devoid of will, but you do have intelligence, which is to say there isn't anything you can resolve to do. You don't even know the meaning of the term resolve. You have no agentic power at all. There's nothing you can do agentically or forbear from doing. Reed's argument is that such a creature, granting that it's an intelligent creature, never on the basis of experience could rise to the concept of causality. The concept of a cause, says Reed, is our externalization of what we recognize in ourselves to be an active power. As I can act and forbear from acting, I understand immediately and intuitively, I understand without reflection, myself to be the source of events that I bring about. It's on the strength of that that I am prepared to make an inference when I see events taking place in a patterned way in the external world that something must have brought them about. So the concept of cause, Reed says, is parasitic on the intuition of active power. Find a creature lacking active power, it could not have the concept of causation. Now that's one way of showing how resources within the organism, resources within the human being, are projected onto the external world to create a representation of events not given by the events themselves. Hume is right insofar as he argues that nothing empirical, not when those billiard balls collide and one moves the other, and Hume says, I must own I do not see some third term betwixt them. Quite so. There is no empirical source of causal dependency. So Hume is right again when he says that, that if you're looking for the locus of causality, well, let me just say it's somewhere between our ears or wherever we, we do these things. But how do we do these things even between our ears? How would it be possible merely on the basis of constant conjunction ever to arrive at the notion of causal dependency? Reed says it's not possible. That the notion of causal dependency is parasitic on the intuitive recognition of oneself as an agent. So there's the Scottish common sense version of the cognitive and volitional resources of the observer 
now constituting the grounds for causal attributions in contexts in which the external world could provide no cue at all. Recall Reed's comment about no two events have been as constantly conjoined in human experience as day and night, but that no man come of years has ever regarded day as the cause of night or night the cause of day. And you can hear resonances of this when Kant takes up the question of simultaneity. So again, it's back into the observer, back into the cognizer, that we must go to find the sources of these representations, these representations of objective, objective reality. So asserted here, when, when Kant says that nothing in a priori knowledge can be ascribed to objects save what the thinking subject derives from itself. If you wanted to translate that into the Reedian critique of Hume's notion of causality, you, you would say that, that nothing in the external event carries with it the concept, the notion, even the grounding of causality, except insofar as there is a percipient whose, up, whose resources are such that on a priori grounds is able to represent, able to cognize lawful dependencies, causal dependencies, and distinguish them from merely constant conjunctions. Again, understanding, human understanding has rules, which I must presuppose as being in me prior to objects being given to me. Well, here again, the pure concepts of the understanding, were they not in place? And were you simply the creature that, that a radical empiricism would have you be? What's the basis upon which You'd even connect something like this. Fuzzy white thing, blue tablecloth, hand in the air, etc. How are these connections made? See, on the empiricist account of associationism, the associations we form are not willy-nilly. So why aren't they? You understand that when, when I... Well, I can't get it now. I think it fell someplace. May I use another one? Uh, that, that you're, you're looking at this, which is selectivity. There's a tremendous amount going on as that's going on. Why aren't you looking at this? Why not this? Why not my spectacles? Why not this rather attractive tie that I put on this morning? See? So you are already tuned selectively to bring to bear a certain order on the external world such that some things will be associated and others will be relegated to background considerations. Shall I bring this to life for you? The neonatal rhesus monkey at three hours is shown to have cells in the auditory cortex that respond selectively to the distress cries of that species. That's what I mean 
by an a priori selectivity of perception. As Reed would argue, were we not thus constituted, you couldn't get across the street for goodness sake. The problem with radical empiricism is that you can't get across the street. You can't even get a street. Well, surely Hume wasn't fooled. No, well, you, look, you don't have to be Let's. Here's a way to be foolish while being extremely intelligent. Have a theory. Um, and, and then defend it against all... John Stuart Mill was doing Greek at eight and thought that the series of positive integers was in fact an empirical achievement. This is a serious person. Thinks that you got there by counting, or something like counting. This is a serious person. He, he actually represented Oxford for one term. It's an imperfect world, that, that Mill got elected at all is a miracle, but that he only lasted one term was inevitable. Um, so, so, on the Reedian account, quote, even the lowly caterpillar will crawl across a thousand leaves until it finds the one that's right for its diet, is the manner in which Reed illustrates a principle of common sense. Reed is a sort of pre-Darwinian, a providential creator has fitted creatures out to be able to negotiate the requirements of life on earth. And when philosophers set out to explain how somehow that's all impossible, uh, their systems are reduced to a source of laughter. Kant, in a much more meticulous, metaphysically rich way, wants to make the same kind of argument that, that the rational structure of science is at once created by the cognitive resources of an intelligent being, a priori resources that must be in place for order itself to be cognized, and at the same time that apparatus generates representations of external reality in a manner that is objective, and the model is the model of science. Well, this permits me a very brief canonical summary of a very difficult passage in Kant. And that has to do with how we're going to answer the question, how synthetic propositions can be known to be true a priori. The answer is, how could they not be? Thank you. You see, if we've put it there, then how could it be otherwise? How could it be otherwise? You're stunned. The answer to the question, how can we know the truth of our synthetic a priori propositions, is that in fact the propositions to the extent that they constitute a reality that we have framed, that has been structured by the pure concepts of the understanding, will have reason finding its own grounding in the very phenomena that it's setting out to, to explain. It is on the basis of the a priori resources of the cognizer that a lawful reality 
is made possible in the first instance. So the trick then is not to establish how uh, a priori synthetic propositions can be known to be the case. The trick is how they can be known to be the case by way of resources that do not conduce to subjectivity. And it's on that that Kant's critics and Kant's supporters continue to argue. So that's all I've got for today. <laughs>